welcome to the Rugby Post, the podcast that gives you the fans' perspective. I'm your host, Josh Matthews, and I'm not just joined by Mike Petretta, but we'll come to our special guest in a moment. How are you today, Mike? Yeah, very well, thank you, mate. How are you doing? You well? Yeah, I'm really good. Really looking forward to this discussion this evening. I understand you've been looking forward to it all week yourself. Oh, for sure. This has been one of these uh, topics that not many people want to talk about so openly, but as fans, we have a right to. So, yeah, buzz for it. Yeah, and actually, just before we start this evening, you know, I received some feedback today that uh, on a previous podcast I'd been a little bit horrible about Ireland. And obviously, we don't come on the show just to, to slag teams off. That's, that's not what we're here to do. We just try and give an honest critique of, of what we're seeing in front of us. So I thought, as a by way of remorse, I'd just like to apologise to absolutely nobody. So if anybody would like to come on, any Iron fans would like to come on and have that discussion with me, I will happily have that discussion with you. So without further ado, let's move on to today's guests. And I'm really, really happy that we've been able to get three of our friends and family on to have this discussion with us today. So first of all, I'd like to bring in my younger brother, Jake. How are you today, Jake? Hi, Josh. I'm great, thanks. How are you? Yeah, really good, thanks. I think there's going to be a theme to these questions coming forward from everyone. Yes, uh, yeah, I'm really good. Could you quickly just give us your favourite player from history and your favourite player contemporary? I think I'd have to go for my favourite player of history. It's quite a regular one, I think, in Brian O'Driscoll. I think he's a man that everyone wants to watch. And contemporary player, I think, has to be Anton Dupont. He's just, being a scrum half myself, he's a man that you would aspire to be, runs the show. But I will have to admit that it was a close second because Lewis Reed Zammett at the minute also is tearing it up. And now that is a kid that is enjoyable to watch. Yeah, you can tell we're brothers, can't you? Because they're the two names that I gave on our first podcast. Did you ever listen to that today for some ideas? No, I gave it listen to the first time round, but I've not repeated it yet, no. Brilliant, thanks, Jake. Next up, we've got Mr Connor Duffy, friend of mine and Mike's from university. Hi, Connor. You right, mate? What's the crack? Yeah, good, thanks, mate. Your favourite player, please, from history and your favourite contemporary player, please. So, I'd have to say Ben Smith, because just the way he played from fullback. And the way he played the game, he broke the line. He was always looking to attack. It was just, he was just phenomenal in my eyes. Really was a good addition to that All Blacks team. And there's a bit of a theme here. My contemporary player would probably be Stuart Hogg. I think his attacking flair, I think with him as well, people tend to concentrate more on the negative sometimes rather than just appreciating the player that he is. And when you actually sit back and watch him, the way he controls it from fullback is absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, I think Ben Smith's a good one, actually, because I think in that All Blacks team, he was probably a bit of an unsung hero. You know, there was a lot of guys in that team that were absolute superstars, but he was just a sod performer. He showed it week in, week out and did what was asked of him to a very, very good standard. Exactly, yeah. He ended up with 84 caps, which is when, when you look at it, like you said, not a lot of people will remember him, but he was there for like 84 tests. And for the All Blacks, he two World Cups. That's that's no mean feat. Absolutely not. Uh, and our final guest today, another friend of mine and Mike's from university and former housemate, we've got Ryan. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Josh. How are you today, mate? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Good. Your favourite player, please, from history and contemporary? So I've got two that I want to say sort of from history, although... I say history, they are kind of still about, but a rugby league one, uh, Benji Marshall. I play 10 myself and Benji Marshall obviously is a standoff in rugby league, has so much flair and sort of his ability to step is just second to none. 
for rugby union though is definitely got to be Sonny Bill Williams. His ability for the offload, the running game, he sort of brings everything to the table and he can play cross code and sort of does it well, unlike other players who have tried to make that switch. For the current day though, I would have to say it's got to be Marcus Smith. He's such a young player. He's the third highest scorer in the Premiership at 21 years old. And that is just amazing. I'm really excited to see what he's going to bring to the table. Being a Quinns fan as well, I'm probably a little bit biased there, but I think he's got so much more he's going to bring to the table um, now and in the future. You know what? Five minutes into a rugby union podcast, you've brought up rugby league. Can't believe it. The way tonight's conversation is going to go, I suspect rugby league may be brought up later on, given that most of their competitions have been ring-fenced or are ring-fenced at the moment. So thank you guys for being here. Obviously, Mike and I are really, really grateful for you coming on to have this discussion with us. So before we get started on today's discussion, which I'm hoping will be a, a good discussion for us to have, I just wanted to give you a brief history of the league structure in British rugby for the last 35 to 40 years. So just to provide a little bit of context for what we're going to be talking about today. So the RFU was formed in 1871. And up until the early 1970s, there were no leagues, as the governing body was concerned that the introduction of leagues would lead to an increase in boot money. For any listeners out there that don't know what boot money is, boot money was a practice whereby players would come back in after a game and find brown envelopes of cash in their boots, effectively paying them and going against the ethos of the sport that had remained amateur for well over 100 years. Clubs arranged their own fixtures and the only organised tournaments were the county cups and the county championship. Some newspapers would try and compile the results so they could give an indication of which of the teams were the strongest. But of course, there was nothing official. Then, in 1972, the RFU sanctioned a national knockout competition, the RFU Club Competition, which would eventually become today's Premiership Rugby Cup. This was followed up by regional merit leagues and then, in the mid-1980s, the national merit leagues. In 1987 we get the birth of the Courage Leagues, the precursor to what we now know as the Premiership. In its first season, the clubs were expected to arrange their own fixtures on a mutually convenient basis. And by the start of the following season, the RFU allocated Saturdays as the day on which the games had to be played. At this point, there were still no home and away fixtures. Each team played each other once. In that first season, the clubs that took part were Bath, Bristol, Coventry, Gloucester, Harlequins, Leicester, Mosley, Nottingham, Oral, Sale, Wasps, Waterloo, and more importantly for our discussion today, Coventry and Sale were relegated, replaced by Roslyn Park and Liverpool St Helens, with Leicester winning the title. Not much then changes over the next few seasons. The competition plays about with how many teams are promoted and relegated, but for the most part, it remains two up and two down. We then get the big change in 1995, with the game having long resisted professionalism, the various bodies responsible for administering the game take the game professional and thus abandoning the amateur rugby that had remained in place since the dawn of the RFU. The game in England would follow suit and in 1997 we get the birth of the Allied Dunbar Premiership, a new league consisting of 12 teams, Bath, Bristol, Gloucester, Harlequins, London Irish, Newcastle, Northampton Saints, Richmond, Sale, Saracens and Wasps. The league was won by Newcastle Falcons who had a young Johnny Wilkinson in their squad. More interestingly for our discussion today, there was no automatic relegation this season. The league wanted to expand to 14, so the top two clubs from the Premiership 2 were promoted, and third and fourth in the Premiership 2 played a playoff with the bottom two in the Premiership. 
Until 1990 to 2000, the league tweaks the promotion relegation rules, but largely sticks with some sort of playoff and reduces to 12 this season after Richmond go bust and London Irish merge with London Scottish. During this season, the change to one-up, one-down promotion relegation system is introduced and has remained largely unchanged since. Other seasons to call out in which promotion and relegation were serious talking points are the 2001-2002 season, in which Rotherham refused promotion on the grounds that their facilities did not meet the Premiership's criteria, thus saving Leeds Tykes. In the 2019-20 season, Saracens were effectively relegated after historic breaches of the league salary cap over a three-season period, in which they failed to disclose player payments. That's your whistle-stop tour of this history of the league structure and promotion and relegation in English domestic rugby. What I would like to know is, given we have a 35-year history with promotion and relegation, do we think it would be immoral and against the spirit in which the competition has been played to scrap promotion and relegation moving forward? Yeah, so for me, I think the current infrastructure doesn't support ring fencing. I think promotion and relegation probably is the right route. Uh, to take certainly into in the intermediary that being said if there's still going to be sort of impact from covid next season let's hope there isn't it would make sense as to why we start sort of considering at least a short-term sort of promotion relegation hiatus obviously gloucester this year were sort of fairly vocal saying it's pretty unfair that northampton saints got points from their covid reshuffling of fixtures so from their perspective I, i can understand the arguments for and against that being said from a personal perspective, I think there's far more work that needs to be done to protect the grassroots because right now there is that clear sort of elite pathway, albeit from like a, an academy perspective. And these academies obviously have catchment areas. So it'd be really interesting to see if someone who has made plans for the ring fencing as of sort of this, this season, how the implications off the back of it is, because I think th- those infrastructures and that protection of the, the grassroots game has to be paramount because anything else that follows can affect international sports and sort of beyond that, it can actually just have a, a negative impact on the, the, the growth of rugby within England as a whole. So just a couple of considerations from my side. Yeah, I'd like to sort of add on to what Mike's saying there um, about player progression. Um, I think with the current system, obviously there is a clear pathway of that you play a sort of grassroots club level. Then if you're at the sort of desired or the correct standard, you may get selected for your county team. And then from there, usually there's a progression up to sort of the semi-professional, usually with one of the clubs, or you may go into the sort of senior standard for a local club or something along those lines. Obviously it vary person to person. I do feel like having discussed it with people in the past that the element of rim fencing, a good example that you could look at would be NFL in America, how they have their sort of collegiate system where you have players recruited in and that I just think that perhaps there's room for improvement in the UK. Of, uh, I think everyone knows about players who were the best player when they were sort of growing up and never became anything. And perhaps sort of added into the discussion that we have today of the, how ring fencing, whether it could potentially improve the uh, current system and mean that players don't slip through the cracks, whereas in the past they have been. Yeah, so I understand, Dan, that you see this like progression path through from like the clubs to county to either then possibly through into a semi-pro side through a scholarship into a university that is linked or vice versa in, in just 
go straight into an academy and then work your way through up that professional thing. But you've got to look at it now if you go looking at promotion and relegation. So, yeah, obviously from the championship into the premiership, you've only really got a few teams that can really sort of make that jump financially. You've obviously got Saracens who were relegated for obvious reasons. You've got Ealing who have been pushing for it for years. And there might be another club skips my mind. One of you boys might be able to jump in with that. But there's very few clubs that would be able to go up and sustain that. And I feel like with the ring fencing of that premiership, you're actually going to see the survival of the club game as we know it because you won't have teams trying to pump money into the game to get to the top. And it's well known the RFU's problems with money and being able to fund the local grassroots. Yeah, so just picking up on a point which we made previously about, you know, the quality of players coming through. So you talk about the grassroots and the fundamental of that young players working their way through the system. But I'm not sure if anyone else in the well, in the group tonight can tell can name me three players that have made it up from the championship to the premiership that have really stood out to them at any point. Like I'm sitting here thinking in the past even 10 years or so, the one that comes to mind, you've got the bourgeois at Wasps, who came from Bedford. But even he's a, a 23-man squad sort of player. Like he's not your out-and-out starter. And I think the argument for it can hinder the development of players, I'd argue that the development of players has already been hindered. So I don't know what everyone else thinks on that point. Yeah, I agree with uh, what Jake's saying there. I think with a lot of players, if you aren't getting into those academy systems at that young age, you miss out on some fundamental development. Uh, I know of and have been in sort of academy setups at 16 to 18. The training that players receive there is so vital that if you're doing three, four sessions a week, getting told about your nutrition, about your weights that you should be starting at that sort of age, the difference that will make in a player is kind of what will make and break players. And it's those people who have that raw talent from a young age that if they get put into that setup and are picked up by the right people, that's how you make those world-class players. And if they slip through the cracks, it's not a case of, oh, well, we'll catch them later. It, that opportunity's gone because they've missed their chance. Yeah, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address both those points, I think, with, with the next part. So Jake obviously mentioned a couple of players who came from the championship. I think what we need to consider is a lot of the players playing in the championship are normally academy players. So, for example, there's a strong a symbiotic relationship with Hartbury and Gloucester. So if you start looking at Hartbury as the archetypal sort of feeder club, you start sort of understanding that actually Gloucester has inherited some fantastic players. And Hartbury in general have produced some fantastic players, probably being the best university in, in the country. And touching on what Ellis was saying, obviously they attract players because of the facilities that they have, as well as the investment in terms of the infrastructure, the coaching, everything around that is basically what attracts these players to go and actually play their, their university rugby there. And I think if we're talking seriously about ring fencing one suggestion i would make is it works if there are feeder clubs and it works commercially as well because as someone who really enjoys trying to sort of sift through youngsters at the under 20s so certainly when i'm watching sort of the under 20 six nations i love trying to find 
that talent and I think actually there probably is a market for it similar to uh, how the college football is in, in, in America so for me I definitely see some value there if there is going to be almost like a link between two clubs other than that power needs to go back to universities and 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 almost like regionalize from that section and you know Alex Cubsiero's comments on having almost like a draft system within the UK for me fundamentally could work Yes, I think you've raised a couple of interesting points there, Mike. But I think my rebuttal to that would be that a lot of players actually get picked up long before they get to that university level. So a lot of players will play at club rugby from the age of six or seven. And by the time they've got to the age of 15, 16, they're already playing within the county system. And then they're normally picked up by clubs at that point. I know of guys that I went to school with who were picked up by clubs at the age of 13, 14 because they've been playing within the club system. So I'm not so sure how the schooling system and the university system necessarily complements directly the club system i think that they can it can do but i'm not so sure that it, it does I, I agree on certain things that you are saying there one point i would like to add like for myself personally i picked my university based on who i was told to go to from the club so i was playing with uh, harlequins rugby league at sort of 17 18 and they said st mary's is a university that's right by us go there there's opportunities for scholarships etc you can play for us and I know of many current students now obviously London Broncos um, and other players in similar positions that they choose their university based on sport Um, and there is sort of links there at the moment but if you develop that and pushed it further who knows what the possibilities there could be America is the prime example of that players who have their scholarships based on just playing sport and they don't study all they're there for is football and you get 80 90,000 people going to these stadiums to watch college football but then at St Mary's for example where most of us went to we were playing in the Premier League top six teams in the country and certain games we would only have a coach and our supporters there of maybe 20 30 people Whereas the equivalent standard of football in America, you'd have tens of thousands. And it's sort of, we're missing a trick there because the population difference wouldn't account for that difference in supporters at that level of uh, sport. Yeah, I I mean, again, I think you raised some interesting points. But what I would say is that the American system is one that has been around for quite a considerable amount of time. It's an embedded system and that's the way they've always worked it. For us to then try and uproot everything that we've done here over the period of time that we've had rugby in this country to uproot that and try and embed a brand new system, I think is a much bigger task than possibly people realise. Yeah, I'd agree with that. If It's not something that's going to be able to be changed overnight and it's probably not something that we'll ever be able to just go, right, forget that, let's do this because it, it, you, it just wouldn't work. That being said, there's obviously potential for discussion and maybe you combine the two together, pick the best from both and build a new system. That's how obviously things improve. Um, Staying the same, you become stagnant. And I think there's definitely room for improvement uh, in our current system. Perhaps it's a case of combining the two smarter minds than ours. You'd be able to figure out a way where you'd incorporate a sort of ring fencing system like in America combine it with our sort of promotion relegation system and there's a new hybrid there that would work wonders for the sport 
I think the issue still all will always come back to is the fact that this has been our system for so long and the the argument of it's stagnant, it's not working. We've never really tried to change anything. But the issue with that is it's the infrastructure in place makes it very difficult to do that. However, you could argue the fact that the coronavirus has probably made it the easiest and best opportunity to make that change because no one's been in place to poo-poo it or say it's not going to work properly. So I think what you could combine with the American system is university rugby has always been a relatively good standard. You've seen the introduction of Books League now that is giving players who have missed that usage that we've talked about previously a second chance. Players like Alex Dombrandt, hot off everyone's lips at the minute, isn't he? This lad was playing, I think it was Cardiff Uni, I think he was playing for, or Bath, and was picked up by Harlequins, and he's proving that you're never too late to get your chance in rugby. So I think if you could combine the systems with universities, you could try and look at the school system and then grassroots networks, link it with more universities. You've got the Books League expanding. They've gone from eight teams, I think, to 10, soon to expand to 12. And that's across Wales as well now. You've got the introduction of Swansea University. So in terms of you're not just developing the English game, the Welsh teams are also getting a say in it as well at university level. So you could argue the fact that university rugby is probably a better place to start setting up that sort of collegiate sort of system than in the championship. So obviously right now, there's a directive from the RFU to absolutely focus on missed talent. And the way they're focusing on this missed talent is at university level. So right now we've got this academy system. I'm going to refer back to Alex Cubasiero's interview on, on another podcast, whereby he mentioned that out of his 33, his sort of range from a uh, academy level, only he and one other made it professionally and he was the only international. What happened to the rest of these players is they became bricklayers. They, they didn't have any plan b they didn't you know do anything outside of rugby rugby was everything so starting to push all of this talent at university level and still commercializing it in a manner that the universities are getting money so they can invest in the infrastructure and then obviously even having allegiances to universities we've proven that it works with Hartbury. we've proven that it works with gloucester maybe those ties are really interesting i actually think ealing Trailfinders have come out in front of like this whole consideration because obviously they've recently paired up with Brunel and the amount of investment that they're pumping into Brunel's infrastructure, they're essentially trying to get a contingent of players in form of an academy without having to pay those players, which I think is brilliant. At university level, you don't have to pay the players. Although, you know, if there's a commercial element, I'm sure that can be discussed. So just to sort of bring back round Robin to the point that you originally made, I think if we're talking purely about, right, they've been picked up at a young age, I'm, I'm not discounting that. There's, there still could be elements of filtering through from grassroots to particular schools, to particular colleges, to particular universities, similar to the Pro 14 and the Irish. So the Irish model works we can see that it works. Obviously, the amount of talent that they produce in terms of that talent pool and how they compete on a world stage proves that it works. So from my side, I think, yes, the transition would be massive, but could England rugby as a whole, and as Jake said, Welsh rugby as a whole, start looking at that as future plans to grow the game? I'd just like to add on to that as well, mate. You talk about the missed players. And I think what you could argue as well is with the university system is, with, with the players getting older, is you, you might see a decline in young players picking up serious injuries because you've got players that hit university level, the bodies are fully developed. And being a PhD student myself, I would argue that the infrastructure in place at universities are far better for the mental well-being of players as well. So in terms of looking at the player, not just from that 
physical standpoint as well, but also setting them up with an education. So if things don't turn out properly for them at rugby, they'll always have some degree or an education to fall back on. Do you know, Jake, that's an absolutely fantastic point. And we spoke off air before we came on the show. We talked about players being set up for life after rugby. And I think that's probably the game itself would probably admit that it's not done enough to set guys up after they finish their careers. The question I'd like to ask the room and, and get your sort of feelings on is, do you see then this collegial system that we're discussing now as a, a total replacement for academies or one that complements academies? I think if you're going to go sort of go down that route. You've got to start looking at like countries like Australia and New Zealand and the way they set out their club rugby and the way they progress themselves into the sort of the professional ranks. They have their club rugby, then the club rugby feeds the county and then they feed the region and then the super rugby clubs then pick up their talent pool from that. I think to put it strictly down to just the, like the collegiate route with, the universities over here. Like you said, Josh, I just think the infrastructure to get that into place is just going to take way too long. And I think we already have a very good county system set up where players are getting recognised. I understand that talent is going to be missed and that does happen sometimes. But unfortunately, I just think it will take too long for the collegiate system to be put into place. I disagree with a lot of that. I don't think it would take too long to set up. You look at some of the good examples. So you have a club level. It's partnerships are what you need to set up. So it's sort of localising a lot of it. Take a professional club, say Harlequins. They then partner with their local university. So it's potentially St Mary's or maybe there's one or two that they partner with. But sort of adding on to what Josh was saying, I wouldn't see it replacing the academy system. I think it would almost be like another stepping stone. That's sort of the element that you need to add up because from my experience, it's been a case of that if you miss out on one of those stepping stones, be that getting from club level to county level or county level to into an academy to sort of play in a semi-professional setup, you've missed your chance or you've missed it until next year when the trials might be or getting lucky to see a scout. Um, I think if you added in a few more elements there where there's sort of more regional teams, like you said there, Duffy, about how in Australia and New Zealand, there's different steps that you can go up in terms of playing county, the regional level, club level. The more you can get into that sort of setup, the better, because then you've got more money going into coaching and more facilities to players to get exposure. And it's that level of exposure that sort of helps grow the sport. Yeah, and you know what? I totally appreciate that there are some definite positives to a collegial system, but we seem to be talking about, at the moment, we seem to be referring to this collegial system almost as like a silver bullet solution if, if they were to bring in ring fencing. But to me, you have to look at the NFL, like that is not a perfect system. There's a lot that goes on with the American collegial system that is not good. Oh, you have to, you have to watch something like Friday Night Lights just to get a flavour. And I know that's fictitious, but it's based on the lives of people that live in these towns that just had the colleges you know these guys are literally built up as deities from a young age and if they don't make it they are crushed so just the draft system that they have over there isn't necessarily the silver bullet for rugby in this country 
I'm going to touch on your point first, Josh, with regards to obviously these people being distraught. And I think better to be in a position where you've had an education and you can have something afterwards, whereas in the academy system, that's seldom the case. So from from that perspective, it's better to have that education and, you know, go on and move on with your life if you're in that position. Whereas if you've invested from the ages of 14 plus in an academy system and you get nowhere, these people end up being scaffolders. They, they end up being bricklayers. And in my eyes, it's better to start introducing that element of education in terms of a silver bullet and having it as be all and end all and getting rid of the academy systems i think they're more supplementary at least initially if we're talking about ring fencing but i think there is a product there that people would watch bucks have recently started putting stuff on youtube finals etc i watch it i like it it's a shame sort of about the quality of how they record it and stuff the camera work etc but if there was investment there definitely could be enough content there to start supplementing that onto for example, Sky Rugby, if they were to create such a thing. So I think people would watch rugby if they had the opportunity to watch rugby, certainly pertaining to talent pools. And if there's affiliation with clubs, there could be almost like Quinn support St. Mary's and or any other university that's affiliated. So there's that extension from the feeder club as well. I know, again, I keep going back to it, but it's the only example I have, Gloucester and Hartbury. How many Gloucester fans support Hartbury? They've even got Hartbury University on their shirt. So there's that element. There's definitely a product that people will want to pay to watch. And I think with that money, with that investment, as Ellis said, it's almost like a second chance for the players that didn't make it. You know, they're getting the opportunity to shine for a season as opposed to narrow two two hours of like really intense academy tryouts if they're invited to an open tryout. So everyone knows they might have a bad game and then that's it. That's their shot gone for another year. Whereas this gives them the opportunity to really showcase what they can do over a period of time and then people can make an informed decision. Alex Dombrandt being the, the point that proves it can work. Yeah, all really interesting points. I think what I just had to try and bring this back to, obviously, this discussion is meant to be about ring fencing and we've talked a lot, you know, about player development through university and club systems. So what I would just be interested to try and get from everyone is how do we see player development affected by the possibility of ring fencing? So upon that, Josh, sir, this is the issue I've got with the being ring fenced this year. Saracens breached the salary cap in historical and magnificent fashion. I perceived of them being forcefully relegated pretty much with a points reduction. It was a great chance for clubs in the championship to have these players, well, because England players remain with Saracens, go into their club. And it was a great chance for these players to develop. And how many other people can say they've had the chance to play against what the England squad at the minute is deemed to be the best? And I think Saracens been just awarded a place back in the Premiership. I, I wanted to see them having to go to these gritty grounds where the changing rooms are five-star. They go for a beer with the other teams after the game and bring some humility back to some of these players who evidently, in the blatant breach of salary caps and everything else, I think it would have been good for the game in general to see the Saracens, some of these Saracens players been humbled a bit. Completely agree with that. And I think actually humility being sort of the core word there, you know, they've been in breach of these salary caps. They've benefited from them. And obviously the club had to pay the fines. The players didn't. So humility is a big point. Yeah, no, completely agree with that. Yeah, see, I understand where you're coming from there and things like that. And it would would have been good to have seen them actually have to compete and try to get out of the situation, the predicament they put themselves in. But then what you've got to understand at the end of the day, they put themselves in the salary cap, over the salary cap through however, however, like Bill Beaumont and his team and board of directors decided to go down that down that route. But at the end of the day, they could still afford it. 
you've got to look at these clubs, some of these clubs that are looking to come up. Some of them have got to find themselves a ground, which they've then got to pay for. They've then got to pay better quality of player when they actually do then get promoted. Say if they got promoted over Saracens, they've then got to sustain that. I just don't think that there's enough competition coming up from the championship to be able to sustain promotion and relegation. You're just going to see the same teams yo-yoing up and down again. I don't know if it would necessarily be the same teams yo-yoing up and down again. If you look at the example of Newcastle coming up this season, obviously they've got a history of being in the Premiership, but they have had a few years where they've been in the Championship. They've got a few ex-international players who are you could maybe deem past their prime, like Toby Flood. I think he's a fantastic player. However, they've come up, and I, I might be wrong in their record at the moment, but they've won the majority of their games against teams I personally was expecting them to get absolutely hammered by. I think it is a case of there's opportunity for those clubs that come up of touching on what Jake was saying about players who have been humbled and really have that desire to play rugby. These teams in the championship, there are players there and clubs there who do have that ability. I would say, though, I think there is an element that it's probably more players that are going to come up. And I think ring, ring fencing could be a positive there. It is a case of, though, there are going to be a few teams who may then miss out on that opportunity. And then they'll have to be happy with becoming a feeder club if that is the way that the uh, system goes. Because rather than being able to fight for that opportunity to get into the premiership and be the club the players will have to sort of look internally and go, right, I want to become the best I can to then progress up into a, a professional club or a premiership club. I think the ultimate thing we've got to be thinking about, though, is the overall situation. So what do we want as fans? What do we want for the players? All, all that side of things. We want good sport. We want viewership to increase. We want rugby to be bigger and better than it ever has been in the past. And that may be at the detriment to one or two of these clubs that perhaps in five years' time, they develop the funds, they have a new backer and become something bigger. But ultimately, if ring fencing is something that can provide a system where talent identification improves, viewership increases, and these clubs, we've not touched on the point yet that if you have that security that you're not going to be dropped. Clubs will start to play a different style of rugby. It might become a lot more exciting and clubs develop their own unique sort of ability with the only one I can think of at the moment is Quinns are starting to play quite a flary style of rugby sort of based around Marcus Smith. But I think teams will start to identify their own style rather than it just being a case of the England model, right? statistics kick for corners and trying to copy into that to win they will know right maybe we can try something new and perhaps that will be better but without having that element of security teams might not be willing to risk that opportunity some really interesting points there guys but a question i'd like to put to the group is can anybody tell me the last time a team was relegated from the premiership and then not immediately promoted back to the premiership we must be looking at I think I'm right in this. In 2010, Leeds Tykes, or as they were then, Leeds Carnegie were relegated from the Premiership and didn't return back to the Premiership. Now, what you have to think about is, are we just doing this as an exercise because we've always done it? You know, we talk about changing the system from a 
academy-based system to a collegial system? Are we just continuing to do this promotion and relegation system because it's something that we've always done? And what you have to think about is that there is a real human cost to these teams going up and down all the time. You know, how many people possibly lose their jobs because budgets are cut? Yeah, Josh, I think you touched on it there. I think you're right in saying it was Leeds Tykes that were the last team to sort of go down and then almost come back up straight away. I think in, if you look historically, teams that have recently got relegated, it was Quinns, London Irish, Newcastle, Bristol. And then from that, the only team that really did, and it has been quite a meteoric rise, is Exeter who, even though they were original, they went down for a few years and then came back up and then just about managed to sustain themselves. But it's the same teams that still seem to be getting relegated and promoted, and that's because these teams still have the funding. I just don't think that these teams, and I think it comes down with to money management, I just don't think that they fully understand what it takes to keep themselves competing at the next level and then you, you've then got to start when So if you're going to start going down there, you understand I'm obviously for the ring fencing. You've got to start looking at the super rugby models. You've got to start looking at the Pro 14 models and how well they've worked. I think Duffy's totally right there. You start looking at the Safka model. Look at the Lions, the Safkan team, the Lions. They were the whipping boys for four or five years when they first came into it and then reached, I think, was, I think it's two super rugby finals in three years. But that's taken nearly 10 to 15 years to do. So it's one of those ones where we can't just give this a half go. We've got to commit solely to it and probably have it as a 10-year project because you've got a whole generation of players that are probably going to have to come through a system and start being able to allow to make that difference in a squad. So I think we can't just say, give it three years and see if these teams need to be re-evaluated. I think you've got to go minimum five years and see if there is one team that can't quite meet what everyone else is doing then have a look at potentially adding another team the problem with dropping a team down is you're just going back to the same point again of they're not going to get any funding they're going to lose players they're going to lose jobs coaches staff so I think instead of taking away teams I think add more to it because then the bottom teams are able to compete against each other which then that drives more players to come forward I think the current infrastructure doesn't support ring fencing. And the reason I'm saying that is because if there's ring fencing, my one concern is that it will effectively destroy championship rugby. There's little viewing anyway at the moment in terms of, you know, TV rights, etc. And I think there could always be done more to assist those. Obviously, they had a budget cut two seasons ago to 375,000. And without that, I don't think there's many, if any, of the teams could uh, be able to self-sustain themselves, bar maybe Ealing and obviously Saracens at the moment. So there's that consideration to take. And, you know, if we're talking about pro ring fencing, if we're talking purely from a stadium perspective, I think the capacity for the premiership has to be 10,000. And right now in the championship, the only team that could go up without having to put any investment into stadium is Saracens with, which was the Alliance and is now the Stonex. Aside from that, even Ealing, who have beaten Saracens twice, let's see how they fare, obviously, when, when the championship actually gets going. They have 4,000, right? So they'd have to find a football team to team up with. And that has inherent costs as, as it stands as well. And it's, it's a difficult point because I think, you know, Exeter are the, the team that you go to to disprove ring fencing. You know, they've come up and after 10, 11 years, they won the double. And I guarantee if anyone went back 10 years and said, in 11 years time, you're going to sort of win, everyone would laugh at because they'd only just come up. So at what 
what point are we saying that the infrastructure supported from uh, the championship is just redundant and you know we're happy to see those teams peter out to a local following and if so the only way i see the championship actually being able to to continue is to be a feeder club for these teams so then there's that club affiliation to, to the championship side so it's almost like sharing a fan base as well so there, there could be potential sort of investment and money coming from both you know university for saying that is a function of it and the actual club itself the premiership club I think I want to put a question to you, Mike, that kind of uh, expands on what you're talking about there. And it's basically with the current system of promotion and relegation, is there a responsibility for the Prem to support clubs more if they're promoted? Obviously, the player quality is there. They've been good enough. They've had the coaching, whatever it is, to win in the championship and get to that point where, right, we're getting promoted now. Being that obviously only very few clubs have the facilities available, but perhaps they've got the players and the sort of coaching staff there that they could be the next Exeter. Is there then a responsibility for the Prem to assist that that rise? That's actually a brilliant question. And the only way I would foresee that being fair is if they start looking at the infrastructure when it pertains to academies if we're keeping this uh, academy system so it's, it's it's easy just to say oh we'll throw you some money and there'll be improvement but we know that's not always the case so if they start looking at you know maybe improving participation within the region and and again this goes to more grassroots which i think the premier premier rugby has some ownership of in terms of funding to grassroots level obviously there's not enough but they're nurturing the talent so so the point i'm trying to make is if we look at newcastle in terms of the northeast like they have free range right so from that perspective the only sports they have to compete with is, is football and rugby league and you know from that point there's very similar attributes so if we start looking at sort of participation within the sport within that area albeit sort of as a long-term investment for this team so 20 to 30 years time we can start producing some serious talent in that fall and actually Exeter again going back to them they have taken talent from Cornwall you look at a lot of their players obviously that that would typically fall in Cornish Pirates catchment and they've sort of taken over that whole southwest where rugby union is so dominant and it just goes to prove that actually through that academy system albeit you know this year they, they brought on a Stuart Hogg and brought on a Gray and you know there, there's some some investment that they've bought externally all of that has come from their academy and focusing on a way to play from a young age and as soon as they go in they know what they need to do each person has an assigned job doesn't matter they don't deviate from the game plan it just works that attritional game some people say it, say it's boring other people say it's effective but that's a way i see it working just investment in sort of academies and and, and grassroots yeah i just wanted to pick up on what mike had mentioned about the championship we talk about interest in the championship now just as a bit of research for this podcast, I wasn't sure whether it come up. It, it may come up later on, but I looked up some average attendances across the major rugby leagues in the world, including rugby league, you know, the NRL Super League and top 14 Premiership rugby. There's no data on the championship. Now, that would possibly suggest to me that's because there's a lack of interest in it. There's data on the French second division. So it would suggest to me that there's a distinct lack of interest in the championship. So whilst I'm not sitting here saying we should just jettison the championship teams and think, do you know what? Tough. What I think is, Jake mentioned earlier about it being, a, you know, we, if we're going to buy into this, we buy into it properly and we run it as a 10-year project. And if we're in a position in five or six years' time where a team like Ealing is absolutely romping it, why would we just not extend the premiership 
by one more team. I don't see that as being an issue. Super Rugby have been doing that for years. They extended. They had Western Force came in. They had Sunwolves came in. They had Juarez come in. I don't see that as a problem moving forward. So, Josh, what would you do with the Championship? I don't think anything needs to do with the Championship. They just continue as they are. If we're going to move towards this collegial system, then the players obviously would go through the collegial system. The clubs will still exist, but unfortunately... I don't think, as we've discussed, not many of them are in a position to even come, if, even if they wanted to. So whilst I'm not saying we should just jettison them and forget about them, I kind of think that the distinct lack of interest shows that there's a lack of care anyway in the Championship. And that's a really harsh reality for a lot of these fans, and I appreciate that. Just want to, I've got a couple of points to jump on that we've been discussing. And I think the fundamental thing that I always keep coming back to is the RFU and the complete mismanagement of funds and how they've allowed the championship to dissolve on itself. You've got this system where clubs do not dare improve grounds because it's not safe to do so. There's no guaranteed funding. You've got no money coming down. A best example of that is you develop Penny Hill Park for three and a half million and then don't even use it. What could that three and a half million do for championship clubs? The RFU have left the championship with, without a hope and a prayer, really. The Exeter with this shining light that gave all clubs hope to try and do something their ground wasn't wonderful, but they brought it up to scrap and they made it a, a fortress for people to go to. And I think the fact that ring fencing, it stops that ability to dare to dream. So the question I just asked off the back of that is that how can the RFU expect fans to show an interest in the competition, the championship, when they show no interest in it themselves? One thing I'd like to say with the idea about ring fencing and what do you do with the championship, I think if it still has a system where you could break into that ring fence and obviously that kind of defeats the object or at least get the attention of that, hey, we're a really good club. We deserve an opportunity and a seat at the table. So whether you have like ways that you could bring, break the ring fence in and uh, I don't know what those specifically would be. Is it a case of that, okay, maybe you win the championship two, three times in a row or you win a certain tournament or you're providing sort of a, a, just a certain level of performance that you could compete against these bigger clubs and you're putting your hand up to sort of say, hey, we, we deserve a seat at the table. I think if there was the potential of that and it would have to be something that is difficult and unlikely to happen because it needs to be a team that is extraordinary to then go, right, we, we should be given this opportunity. I think going back to a point someone made earlier about they asked the question, what would you do with the championship? Now, you look at the Pro 14 with the clubs in Wales, Scotland and Ireland. Their leagues still exist within their own countries. It's just the top league in their country. And you go there, you look at Ireland as a prime example. The Leinster, Ulster, Connaught, Munster, all it goes back to you feed it then becoming feeder clubs. They feed off of these top clubs in the country. And even though while, while they might not be getting exposed, that TV exposure, that media exposure, I think it allows the professional clubs to actually have a better look at some of the talent inside those leagues. And what you've really got to look at in, and it, I keep, it's a point I keep going back to, about the English Rugby Championship and the amount of teams that are actually interested in going up. Because you've got Richmond now, who I believe, even though they're in the Championship, they're actually gone down to semi-professional status. 
Yeah, mate, very, very good points, actually, uh, on, on both. Obviously, Richmond have gone down because they can't afford to pay the, to, to pay the players. That's why they've gone to semi-pro. But the point I really want to sort of touch on from, from your perspective is actually the cohesion between the top league in Ireland and the Pro 14. Because if you look from the, the those four uh, franchises in the Pro 14, the vast majority of them, come from particular public schools right so again we're talking about that scholastic system where it works in even in the even for england you know there's there's i think it's 80 percent of all non-public school england players come from campion and of those 80 percent it equates to sort of like 13 percent of all rugby players so for England, excuse me, for England International. So the point is, right, the vast majority is still held up in these public schools. So it talks about this this wider variety of talent which isn't being pushed towards rugby and, you know, they're, they're being pushed towards football because it's a poor man's sport. All you need is, you know, ball and, and two jumpers and, and you're there. It's not like rugby where you have to have all of these facilities in place to actually train. And I think from point that you've raised, the actual partnership from the top clubs come from again schools for example they'll be playing with each other and then they'll go into like muster or uh, monster excuse me or they'll be playing with each other from a school level and they'll be playing so similar to how we have our county level but more defined yeah so fun i just wanted to touch on was obviously we talk about ring fencing i think when we when we speak about ring fencing we talk about it as this like quite scary concept for a lot of people because obviously we've had promotion relegations been in place as we discussed earlier for nearly 35 years and it's almost always been a part of the league system but I don't think it has to be you know I understand why it is because I think that there's a concern from fans who support clubs in the championship and lower down that all that would happen is that these clubs at the top would just get richer on their own and the money wouldn't trickle down but if there could be a way developed where that money does trickle down to grassroots, it could have a huge impact, a huge positive impact on grassroots rugby. And if you look at a competition, and I think I may have mentioned this earlier, the NRL in Australia, okay, they have a ring fence competition. They play exciting rugby and their TV deal is worth 2.8 billion Australian dollars. Could you imagine what a competition or what sport like rugby union could do in this country with that sort of funding if they were playing rugby that was entertaining and I mean genuinely entertaining as well Premiership rugby is entertaining but it's not on the same level I don't think as some other competitions so I think that they could ring fence it and encourage these teams to play more attractive rugby get more viewers bigger TV deals and if that money then trickles down to grassroots it could have a huge positive impact on grassroots rugby so from a completely rugby selfish point of view here if we take the human factor and the human emotion out of this you would probably argue that ring fencing it is probably going to be better for the english game we might be able to see more exciting rugby i mean some argue that in super rugby when you see a game that's 50 points to 48 it's not very entertaining but i think most people would probably rather see that than a 6-3 ball so i think from a completely selfish point of view i think the prospect of ring fencing could only be a positive thing for English rugby moving forward. So a concept I'd, I'd like to ask you guys is, do you think there's enough talent in the championship to have a rival competition to the premiership? So what I mean by that is a lot of the talent that, like I said, there's feeder clubs that come in from the championship to the premiership. They start investing their own money in, into the academies. There's the set catchment areas. So, you know, there's enough talent pool for, for everyone. Do you think that there could potentially, with some investment, be competitive league from, from that perspective? 
I think there potentially could be, uh, and it would be difficult to do so. But if you had a style of rugby in the championship that was more exciting and obviously is a bit more riskier than me personally, I, I would be intrigued and would want to watch that. I don't think that alone would be enough. I think you'd need almost like a regional element so that teams or local areas would get behind their specific team. So a good example being obviously for the Southwest, you've only got a couple of teams that you could choose from, Exeter, Cornish Pirates, and you'd almost have like a centre of patriotism for your local club and that being your local premiership club, your local championship club. I think if you were able to cultivate that kind of attitude from fans where you have that regional aspect, and obviously that doesn't discontinue people who live not near their local club or the club that they support, but if you had that sort of regional pride, you'd get so much more engagement from fans and they would want to watch their county matches. They would want to watch their championship team matches and it would get that more exposure. I think as well how clubs are now starting to realise that they can put a game up on the internet and monetize it. There's an argument of whether it should be free, try and get money from adverts or, or have instead a paywall that what is best for engagement for fans. Personally, I think put it out there for free get the engagement that that is the main thing and perhaps it would be a case of that there's a televised rights from the premiership or the RFU however you'd want to sort of phrase it where all championship matches were going to be online and although these clubs may only have stadiums that could fit a few thousand fans or less the, the restrictions for watching online are limitless so you could get a local club fixture that is going to be a big rival match and you could have tens of thousands or more watching that online, not just restricted as well by location of the country. Like you, you could have people overseas who are looking to recruit players themselves who can then look at the championship as a good sort of source of uh, players. Yeah, I, I just think possibly, and you know, I don't want people to think I've just come on here to, to bag on the championship today. You know, that, that's not why I'm here. I just think that we're possibly overestimating the amount of talent in the championship. What we've got to remember is that a lot of young players are still playing in academies and academies play so that they have an academy competition. So a lot of the best young players are still playing in those academies. They're not playing in the championship. Of course, you get teams that will loan out players to championship clubs, but the vast majority of the good young talent is still playing in the academy competition. I'd add on to that, though. Increase the exposure to that put the games for those ones online or if uh, there was the exposure in the championship and these games were becoming better there'd be more incentive for those academy players to get games there potentially if it's something that they could then learn and develop their ability no i, I just think the point i'm sort of making at is is fine to give exposure to something but if you give an exposure to something that's not a particularly good product to begin with it's not going to draw eyes to it yeah i'd agree with that However, I would say it's kind of like the chicken and egg argument of exposure would increase viewership that would then potentially raise the standard of what the product is. So the argument is that if you increase the exposure, could that then help improve the talent identification, players coming through, and then in turn increase the uh, standard of the product? 
I, I think when you start going to that um, whole idea of how do you make this, say it does get ring fenced, how you make that second tier competition better, you start looking at South Africa and New Zealand, you've got the Curry Cup and you've got the Mitre 10 competitions, which in their countries are actually very well marketed, very well. So all of a sudden by creating what would almost be a new top tier in English rugby, you'd then be able to commercialise that a, a hell of a lot better because you then got, obviously you've got the professionals and you know where your internationals and stuff are going. Then in that second tier competition, you'd get to end up watching players that you may never have seen before. Yeah, I was just going to say, do you not think it's really quite sad that it's we've had to finally discuss in ring fencing to get people talking about English rugby? Do you not think that it's one of those things that people have, floated with the idea for years and years but now that you've got well Saracen's going down isn't it I think it's probably the starting point for it Saracen's have gone down there with no hope of getting back up because of the coronavirus and I think you could make a pretty strong argument the ring fencing has only come in now because the big boys are starting to get in trouble so as Josh told us about at the start of it with those play the teams that have been in it historically we've now got those historical teams like Saracen's who've been relegated Leicester who are a shadow of the team they used to be you could even argue that Bath are having a shaky start to the season and have been for a couple of years now, despite heavy, heavy investment from these big boys or the deemed big boys of the league. So I think it's just sad the fact that it's taken a global pandemic for us to actually start considering the championship as a competition. It's almost been like the brother or the cousin or the family that no one talks about. And now that it's at risk, people are starting to put the woodwork from every angle to try and defend it. But these people haven't been around for years, so... You hope that it's starting the debate on what we can do with it and hopefully the RFU will pick up on this and try and make some improvements to it that are much needed. Brilliant points. Brilliant points on that. And I think there's a clear disconnect from the Premiership and all other teams. So obviously there's everyone perceives the Premiership as you know what players need to do to progress through the elite pathway to make it to the top. And obviously that's where, when they finally made it, that, that they can finally sort of make money and have a professional life as a rugby player but that's because no one considers the championship as a professional league and you're absolutely right that's really sad because we're talking about the championship being the equivalent of conference north and conference south in football where it's at best semi-professional so I think you've raised some really interesting points around the perception of the championship and you're absolutely right I'm pretty sure if Gloucester weren't banging on the drums so hard saying that it was unfair in, in regards to some of the COVID uh, points allocation you probably wouldn't have seen it and it's taken like you said to get to the point where there could be the potential of ring fencing by bringing Ealing and Saracens up for anyone to actually say they care about it and that I feel as though is more of a systemic issue with the perception of rugby nationally because I come from Worthing Worthing was uh, and that one side it's the that two side and we produce some brilliant players out of that academy or, or we've had some brilliant players come through that that team so likes of launchbury the likes of marchant the likes of marla so that's from a nat one level so the point remains that actually if we're starting to look at sort of this elite pathway as an actual pathway we have youngsters mixing with maybe some experienced players who can no longer cut it in the premiership right and they're learning and developing their trade with these experienced players it, it is a breeding ground for success but it's just unloved and that's the unfortunate truth of it 
Yeah, really interesting points there, Mike. One thing I'd like to ask to you and Josh is, uh, uh, it may be something that's actually known, but I don't know myself. How would salary caps be impacted and rule breaching and obviously the examples where relegation would happen forcefully like Saracens last season? Is there an element of that within ring fencing? Yes, I think that's a really good question. But I think that there's other competitions where, you know, they have ring fencing and, and that hasn't stopped them from punishing teams for certain breaches of the rules. You've had recently, again, and, I, you know, I don't want to keep going back to the NRL and banging that drum, but Melbourne Storm have had a number of titles stripped from them for bre- breaching salary cap rules. Uh, teams get deductive points, fines can be put in place. And ultimately, if teams don't want to stick to that salary cap, dispel them from the competition. And I know that's a real hard line to take, but I think that's ultimately what you would have to do to ensure compliance. Yeah, and I'm going to go approach that question from a slightly different angle. If, as it stands, the championship doesn't have a salary cap, there was the opportunity to have a competing league, that could be another way of attracting you know, foreign talent and again, growing and exposing sort of homegrown talent from the championship academies in the different leagues. So I suppose you can look at it both ways. If there was the opportunity for a superstar come to come over and you know similar to how sort of the Japanese league are currently pulling all blacks and players from all over the world and the same as sort of the American league by pulling you know Bastaro and Robshaw they're trying to increase the exposure by bringing in these big name players because they can pay them whatever they want that in itself could work but obviously that's all determined by the level of investment within that and and who they can sort of bring on in terms of partnership I think you know the CBC have been going around buying everyone at the moment. They bought a stake in the Premiership. They bought a stake in the Pro 14. They bought a stake or they're buying, excuse me, a stake in the Six Nations. If someone went over to them and offered them, you know, 80% control of the league, but they have to pump a massive amount of money, it's a no-brainer because they can grow that league. And, you know, although they own a bit of the the premiership if they if they own a vast majority of another league i'm sure that the investment will come with it so that's the other sort of angle and attitude i'd have to to your question ellis and it's something that i'd be fascinated to hear from from the people listening so if you have two competing leagues what would be the outcome from sort of our viewers perspective and if you can just email in to the rugby posts with an s at gmail.com be fascinated to hear your thoughts so what i'd like to do guys actually is i'm going to come around to you each for some closing thoughts and i would like for each of you please to give me a one word answer yes or no do you think the premiership should be ring fenced for the long term and your reasons for, for yes or no and i'll give you mine i think that the premiership should be ring-fenced moving forward. I've not been convinced by any of the arguments for not keeping the ring-fencing in place. I think there's a chance for the game to still be grown, talent to still be nurtured, and I think that it can be a massive positive for the game in this country moving forward. Jake? I think, unfortunately, I'm going to have to come down on the side of, yes, it should be ring-fenced for the greater good of English rugby. And I think that's the way you've got to see this as an independent England fan is, we're all fans of the game, and I think this is the only way to progress the England game forward. Ryan? Damn, going three out of three, I'm also yes. I think it should be ring-fenced. main reason for myself is I feel like it would increase viewership and improve the quality of the rugby that we're watching. Connor? Yeah, I, from what some people have said tonight, I thought they might have come down a bit differently. I think I've come across quite clear that I'm 
in favour of ring fencing. I feel like championship clubs, there aren't enough of them to keep supporting promotion and relegation. And finally, Mike. So for me, uh, it's quite clear that under the current infrastructure, I don't think it would work. So if we just said as of today, there's ring fencing, there'd be a massive amount of issues. So I think from my side, as long as there's clear plan, they look to to utilize this season as a case study and really start developing the background and how, you know, it will look from an infrastructure perspective. I could be, you know, all for it, but as it stands, absolutely not. For a moment then, I thought we were going to get the clean sweep and we were going to annoy every rugby fan up and down the country. But alas, Mike brings it back and gives us a bit of balance to the argument. So just want to say a massive, massive thank you to the guys, Jake, Connor and Ryan, for coming and joining us this evening. You've been absolutely fantastic. As Mike mentioned, we've got our email address. If you want to email in and give your thoughts on the promotion relegation, we've got our email address, therugbyposts at gmail.com. With an S. So I'm just going to jump in and give us uh, the other social media tags. So our Twitter handle is rugbypost1, or one word. Our Facebook, if you haven't liked our page, uh, jump in. We've also got a group that we're about to start as well. So it'd be sort of free-flowing conversations and discussions. It'd be a really interesting place to start posting your thoughts as well. And that is the Rugby Posts podcast. And our Instagram, which is rugby underscore posts with a zero. So if you want to get in contact with Josh and I, those are the three best methods other than the email. So feel free to, to message and uh, we're happily engaged in some discussion. Thank you very much. And guys, just to finally add, if you are really enjoying this podcast, if you could just like, share, subscribe and share with all your friends and, and give it a listen. You know, we can't continue to make this unless we get support from you guys. So if you are enjoying it, please, if you could just share it. So that's it. I've been your host, Josh Matthews, joined tonight by my co-host, Mike Pachetta, with special guests, Dr. Jacob Matthews, Connor Duffy and Ryan Ellis. Thank you all for listening. And that was rugby. Thank you very much.